Hey there, and welcome to the Smart and Simple Matters show with your host, Joel Zeslowski. Have you ever felt like you were missing something essential from your life? Oh, me too, which is why you'll dig what you're about to hear. This is episode number 85. Yo, yo, you know, I often use words like gratitude and appreciation to express what it means to me when you give me your time and attention for an episode. I'd actually rather give you a hug or a smile, but that uh, doesn't work so well verbally. So once again, here's my sincere gratitude and appreciation for listening to what I have for you. And oh, is it a doozy. Before we get too far, I want to make sure I give a special thanks to our show's new patrons on Patreon, also known as the folks who make my investment of hundreds of hours, thousands of dollars, and consistency for Smart and Simple Matters possible. So let's give some kudos this time to Richard. Richard, Sweet, sassy, molassy, you make me happy. As always, this episode is brought to you by my voice and Patreon supporters, because I don't have sponsors. I just have you. So consider showing your support for me, this show, and our community at valueofsimple.com slash Patreon. Now... Here's an extra dose of love to Skysong45 from iTunes, who wrote this review of the show with the title, A Little Something for Everyone. I've been listening for about a month now, and I really love the diversity of the interviews. One of the best things I've gotten from the podcast overall is learning the term multi-potentialites. I have always called myself a renaissance woman, but I like this new way of looking at the world of eclectic talent and experiences. I know, it's pretty sweet, huh? Skysong45? Well, from one multi-potentialite to another, thank you. I'll bring my favorite multi-potentialite, Emily Wapnick, back on the show once again when her definitive book on the topic is done. So cool. Her TEDx was recently featured on the TED.com homepage, and she is blowing up. So, so happy for my friend. And actually, she is bringing people together around this topic of being a multi-potentialite, and I am having so much dang fun bringing people together myself, preferably in person, around simple living and community building. The Simple Rev 2015 event in Minneapolis on October 2nd through 3rd, which I had the absolute pleasure of co-organizing and co-hosting, that went fee Phenomenal, phenomenal. Uh, just an intimate community of these, all oh, these awesome simple living enthusiasts who finally found the place where they belong. I'm not joking. One participant even said that her time at Simple Route 2015 was literally the best time of her life. No exaggeration. <laughs> I mean, how do you follow that kind of experience up? I have no idea. We'll figure it out along the way. Uh, I don't really even know what's next for Big Simple Rev events, but I do know that anyone, including you, can get in on the Simple Rev action locally 
with our Simple Rev local gatherings. You can peep the details at simplerev.com slash local. Now, I have a couple of other big things coming up for the rest of 2015, but I'm focused right now on just a whole lot of family time, which I hope includes lots of snuggles and silliness. I've also started the Great Beardathon of 2015. Yeah, the beard's coming back. Pretty stoked about that. Okay, now on to the interview stuff. First of all, this interview, this one right here that you're just about to listen to, this interview is a rare treat. Because my guest, Greg McEwen, the author of Essentialism and many other fine creations, just he just really doesn't do feature-length interviews. He's only done one other one in 2015 with Michael Hyatt, and now what you're about to hear makes two. Although we talk about the themes of Essentialism, the cool part is we talk just as much about what he's learned and has been doing since publishing the book in early 2014. I don't even think this kind of insight is freely available anywhere else as I publish this podcast episode in October 2015. So enjoy what you're about to hear. Dipsy do dunkaroo deeply. (laughs) Are you ready? Here we go. There's taking it back to the basics And then there's intentionally moving things forward to the essential. My guest today, well, he knows about both. His name is Greg McEwen, and you're most likely to recognize him from his best-selling book, Essentialism, a way of life that pushes back against bigger, faster, and busier so we can have less but better. He's also the CEO of This, Inc., an internationally known public speaker and heavily invested in social innovation in organizations like Two Seeds, a nonprofit incubator for agricultural projects in Africa. When he's not writing, talking, or traveling, he's around Silicon Valley with his wife and their four kids. Welcome to the show, Greg. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Well, hey, let's start where... We always start a conversation on the show with something I call the seeds of awesomeness to help people understand how you came to be the person you are today. Can you tell us something unique about your environment as a youth or maybe even one or two experiences you had growing up that had a big impact on you? Well, that's a nice, uh, that's a nice challenge. I, I mean, I think that everything that has happened over the last 15 or 16 years can be traced back actually to a single moment. Um, And I was staring at a piece of paper in my hands uh, that had all of these brainstormed answers to a single question that I'd spent the last 20 minutes answering. The question was, you know, what would you do if you could do anything, but not everything? You know, what's what's really the thing for you uh, where you can make the highest contribution? And... What I noticed when I was finished with that list was not what was on it, uh, but what was not on it. Um, law school was not on the list. Which and was, I would imagine that was a path that you have been going down for a yeah, long time up until that, that, that Well, that, Well, that was exactly the problem is that I was at the time at law school. Uh, and so I was visiting uh, Sean Vanderhoven, a very, very good friend of mine who was li- living in uh, in Colorado at the time. And so I was suddenly away from my home in England, uh, you know, as born in London, grew up in Leeds. And, uh, and all of a sudden with this 
insight, this idea, this possibility. Maybe you don't have to. And so I remember I eventually thought I better call my parents. And so I call my 15-digit number back to England. My mother answers. And finally she says, look, I, I think you better talk to dad. And he, he comes on the phone and, uh, and he listens. And, and finally he says, he says, you know what we've always told you? He says, uh, he says to thine own self be true. Now, in a sense, uh, that's a little unfair because I, I never remember him quoting that phrase from Shakespeare to me in my whole life. Uh, so, uh, but nevertheless, the spirit of that was true, and the spirit of that was right. That he that 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 underneath the messaging around, look, get go get, get be educated, keep your options open, and go to law school. Underneath all of that was a deeper message of no, you've got to figure out what the right path is for you. You've got to listen to your own voice and not just all the noise around. And so I did quit. Uh, I mean, I literally never went back and then began a different path. Uh, and, and for me, there are seeds. I mean, you, you, you talk seeds of awesomeness. There are seeds in that very story of what it is I've ended up uh, you know, studying, writing about in, in the book Essentialism. Um, and certainly one of those seeds was a question. Uh, what was on the piece of paper was a question, and that was why is it that otherwise successful people um, or companies don't break through to the next level? And and that is a question that I've pursued these uh, these sixteen years. So you know, what has it led to? I did an undergraduate uh, in uh, in print journalism. I wanted to really write. I wanted to teach and write. I wanted to understand the skills with which to uh, answer that question and and, and grapple with it. Uh, I ended up going to Stanford, do my graduate work. Uh, that landed me here, where I still live in uh, Northern California, in the heart of Silicon Valley, as I think you mentioned. And so I've had the opportunity to keep asking that question in in, in a very rich uh, environment, uh, working with uh, very successful companies, very successful individuals, and and trying to understand where they plateau and why. Uh, in, in fact, uh, I, I noticed this phenomenon that I write about in the book first with Silicon Valley companies. I noticed that when they were focused on the right few things at the right time, uh, that led to success. And with that success came options and opportunities. And that sounds like the right problem to have, but it does in fact turn out to be a problem uh, if it leads to what Jim Collins called the undisciplined pursuit of more. And so if it leads to that, that can actually under undermine the very things that led to success in the first place. And so that's where I learned this very interesting um, paradox, a paradox of success, which is that success can become a catalyst for failure. Well, this is one thing that I picked up right away. I'm sure other people have noticed this too. You've mentioned the word success a ton of times already, and I like your perspective on it. But one thing, just reading the book, I don't have some kind of a, a word bubble here that says how many times you use something, but contribution. And you frequently talk about highest point of contribution. So that overarching theme for me, the disciplined pursuit of less, and you, you've that theme of better but less, I got that clear. But this highest point of contribution by only doing was essential. So I'm curious, a lot of the companies that you work with, a lot of the people that you surrounded yourself with in your life, this essentialist way of life, is it inherently based on being contribution-oriented or generous? Is to what extent are the people I've worked with focused on 
uh, a kind of uh, maybe a self-centered version of success versus a contribution definition yeah. of success. Or Is that your question? Cent- yeah, an other-centric version. Giving yourself in service to others, being yeah, generous, well, being contribution-oriented. Well, well let, me, let me answer it this way. So one of the people that, um, that I've enjoyed getting to know is is the author of uh, is Adam Grant the author of Give and Take and 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 in that book he's he's grappling with sort of in a sense the same question you just described which is who who, who gets to win in the end the sort of selfish self-centered you know, takers do they win or do uh, you know give us people that uh, are generous do they win in the end and what he found after many years of looking at this research he found this interesting idea which is that the people who – the answer is that the givers uh, are both the group that will most likely lose and the group that will most likely win. So there's two different groups of givers. Uh, so there's two different ways of giving. And that's really important because somebody just the other day, not knowing that I you know, know Adam and that we've talked lots of times, in fact – uh, sort of co-wrote a, a piece not so very long ago. They they said, "Oh, I love I love uh, this book, and I love Adam Grant, but I would love to hear how you would view his thinking, how he would view your thinking, because they seem sort of so different." Hmm. And, and 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 they they had missed both in his writing what he's really saying, and I suppose in my writing what I'm trying to say, because actually I think we're so aligned about this that that there's, there's that what you need to do. Being an essentialist doesn't mean being a taker and focused on your own agenda. Uh, that, that's being a focused non-essentialist. That's saying, I'm going to focus on the things that aren't important. <laughs> so that doesn't take you to becoming an essentialist. Uh, and, and similarly, by just being an undisciplined giver, where you just say yes to everyone and everything without really thinking about it, doesn't lead to your highest contribution. So we're both completely aligned. In fact, in some ways, saying exactly the same thing from a very different uh, – using very different words, which is that a disciplined giver, someone who pursues with discipline the right few things at the right time for the right reasons, will actually make the highest contribution. That's what we're going for. That's what we're pursuing. And that's the antidote to the undisciplined pursuit of more, uh, to this uh, endless people-pleasing kind of approach. Well, what I find uh, fascinating, so the starting point for all that is not what I would have expected it to be. There's chapters that you have in the book and listening to a couple of interviews that you've done. What are we focused on here? Is it learning how to say no better? Is learning how to say yes less important, but not the starting point? Is it negotiating, whether it's with your boss or with your partner, whatever it happens to be important, but not the starting point? Would you, would you mind, just for the benefit of everybody who's listening, what that first step towards essentialism, in your own words, what is it? Well, let me, let me put it this way. Let me describe the three questions, the three parts to this. You've got to first explore what is essential. You've got to second, eliminate what's not essential. And third, you've got to execute is in a way that makes it as effortless as possible to get those most important things done. Those are the three things. And so, yes, you're quite right. You don't begin You don't begin with saying no. You don't begin with eliminating. You don't start there. Uh, and, and I mean, I, I make the point that I didn't write a book called Noism. Uh, yeah, it's not about saying no. I mean, all of us are saying no all the time. We're saying no every time we say yes to anything. So it's not like saying no itself is, uh, is, 
is the principle or the point. The point is to create enough space in your life to explore what is essential, to actually be able to ask that question with some uh, sense of clarity. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I suggest uh, two really important ways to do this. One is that we need to hold a personal quarterly offsite. Uh, so that every 90 days you take a full day, like a 24-hour period to really get away from, uh, you know, normal technology, normal requirements, expectations, all of that, and 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 just get out and really answer these questions. Where, where What is going on in my life? What is essential? What is not essential? What are the few goals, two or three goals for the next 90 days? Uh, what are my life goals? So I can make sure that my 90-day goals are really aligned with that. And you do that every 90 days. So that is a very important practice to make sure that we don't get too far off track. Do you have resources? Before we get to number two, do you have resources of how to conduct this? I'm I'm highly interested in how you do it, although that probably isn't super relevant to how other people. We're not trying to use you as a template. Where would people go for a framework of how to think about it, how to implement this personal quarterly offsite? Well, we've gone quite... Uh, we've been very serious about this. Not quite serious. We're very serious. Ever since the book came out, we've really been asking, and by we, I mean uh, my, uh, my organization, This Inc., we've been asking one overarching question, which is, what is the best way to become an essentialist? Which is a very different question than what are all the different things one can do. Uh, there's lots and lots of things that I've written broadly in Harvard Business Review and and in, in my own blog on gregmcewan.com and so on. I've, I mean, I've explored this, many, many different things that people can do, but that's not the most useful question. What is the best way? And we, we came out of that, actually ended up designing a program uh, that we simply call Essential. Uh, people, it's a very hand-selected, curated process, picking the, 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 right, uh, the right people, uh, we want nice people, for example. And so we, we, we're looking for a certain group of people that come. And, and what they do is we actually have a group that meets in Napa Valley or here in, in, in Silicon Valley uh, where they come every 90 days, small groups of people, and they help to each other to design their most essential life. And so we have put a lot of thought into this. So we've been, we've been as essentialist as we could be about it. Uh, in saying we're not going to do 100 different services and 100 different products or anything like that, or even just write the next book. We want to just design a process that is powerful and potentially life-changing for people. And uh, and so people can, if, if that sort of sounds like the right next step forward, they can go to applyessential.com and they can apply. And that doesn't mean everybody gets in, of course, but that's the you know, we're looking for the right few people. Uh, what we do at that, with the, the, the exercises that we're involved with there, grow partially out of a class that I co-created at Stanford called Designing Life Essentially. And so we've taken the best ideas from the book and the best ideas from the exercises from that, uh, from that class that we held at the design school. Um, and all the best learning we've had from now having thousands and thousands of people, um, more than that, uh, who have read the book and started experimenting with essentialism. And so we're taking all of that learning and the, the, the ongoing discovery uh, and we're putting it into that. So let me just give you one illustration of, of what we do on the first day uh, is that we have people go through an exercise. Uh, it's a very creative process. It includes drawing. It includes interviewing people. It's, it's, yeah, it's hard to describe it. Um, out in nature, we're up in Calistoga Ranch, we're just away, it's a beautiful location. And we have people not just design their life from like, you know, a long-term perspective as in 10 years, 
because that's a lot more long-term perspective than most people do on an email-to-email, day-to-day basis. But we do it generationally, intergenerational planning. So that you say, all right, talk to us about your grandparents. Let's learn about what their legacy was to you, what they taught you, what what struggles they passed on to you, what, what potential damage even came from that. Then we do the whole process about your parents. Then we talk about the from the day you were born to the day you're in this chair. And there's a whole set of creative exercises for trying to really get to clarity about what's been great and why, what's been uh, you know, not great and why. And then we go all the way into the future, not just to one's deathbed, but beyond that to your own grandchildren sitting 20 years after you've passed away. In that same seat, imagining that, what would you want them to remember and know about you? Uh, and to what would what have you passed down to them? And you see, so because the whole idea is that is that in order to figure out what is essential, I think we have to think about what lasts the longest. And that's not just ten year planning or twenty year planning or just even deathbed planning. It's even broader than that. And so I this can't be done in five minutes. You know, we we all can know be done that. in a day, though you're doing well, these exercises with people in a day. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. But 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 we don't expertly but, but, facilitate it. I mean, you are there, well, and you have other people who. That, that's right. But but I but I, your your point is well taken, and we are the ones that, in fact, make it to people. Is you're not going to answer all of those things with anything like perfect clarity in a single day. No, not at all. That's why it has to be every ninety days. In fact, we talk to people, look, you, you come for at least a year. In fact, really, we don't mean that. We mean you do it for like three years and you just take all the pressure off. See, normally when people try to become something, uh, they, they, even though they know it's a process, they still treat it like an event. I mean, just think about almost all uh, you know, executive education programs anyone's ever gone through, any training they've been through in a corporation. I mean, however much people say it's a process, this is learning, it takes time, the way you actually attend is go for one day, go for two days, and then you know try and force your way to execute on this uh, for the first two weeks after you're done so that you really have you know, a, a powerful experience. And we say the opposite. We just say, look, you're coming for a day. You're going to touch these insights. You're going to see things that you don't normally see and attune yourself to them. And then for 89 days, you're going to get pulled all over the place at some level again. And then we just say, yeah, but you just be gentle on yourself. You just come back and sit in the seat again, 90 days later. And it's the, it's, it's a mind shift that we're trying to help people go through. And so that means it's got to be a process and it's got to be a kind process, a gentle process where you can slowly see this change within you uh, within you, the way you see your own life, the way you see things that are important, and that over the trajectory of several years, you can do an enormous amount in designing your life around those things that really matter most. Well, you've painted an awfully vivid picture of the first of the two things, the personal quarterly offsite. What's the other one? Well, I want to go the, the other extreme now, um, which is uh, the daily design uh, and, and I want to offer something that I think is so simple, but it's 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 the simplicity on the other side of complexity. Uh, and it's something, it's a practice that I've used. Uh, I can't say I do it every single day, but I just, did, but, but I, I do it often enough that when I don't do it, I can feel the difference. And it's simply this, every day you take the time Make a big, long list of all the things that you want to do, a normal to-do list, right? All the different things that you'd like to do the next day. And you keep whittling it down. 
until you have, look, here are the six things I really think are important for tomorrow, the most important six, and you put them in priority order. So okay. you've got number one, two, three, four, five, six, and then you cross off the bottom five. And, and you take that top item, and, and I only say that half-jokingly. Uh, I mean, you keep the list, of course, but you, you, do, you don't try the next day to do all six things. It's not like, here are the six things, I'm going to do them all now, and you're doing a bit of all of them. You really just do the first thing on that list. That becomes the priority. And, and I think this is a, this is a non-trivial point to make is that, is that the word priority came into the English language in the 1400s and it was singular, priority, uh, the prior thing, the very first thing, the one thing. And very sensibly, it stayed singular for the next 500 years. I just want us to pause on that, to think about that for half a millennium. Nobody thought to use the word priorities. <laughs> Yes, it was it was a singular thing, as you said. There weren't multiple. Indeed, there cannot be multiple, right? Like the very definition is the thing. So as soon as you pluralize the term, which happened in the 1900s, and I believe happened because of uh, industrialization, which I think the, the, the industrial revolution was a bit like uh, the dot-com, uh, you know, explosion and then a, 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 a bubble and then bust. Uh, in 99 and 2000, it, you know, at that time in Silicon Valley, everybody was talking about, you know, all the old rules are changing. Everything's, everything you ever learned about business is untrue. It's, there was a sort of manic sense of, uh, of, of, of everything's different now. And of course, in a sense, they were right. There was so much change going on as the internet came in. It transforms and will continue to transform our lives in hundreds and hundreds of ways, right? Eventually touching, I think, almost every aspect uh, almost every aspect of our lives, and maybe it already is, but it will continue to. So in a sense, they were right, but in a sense, they were very wrong. And that was the same with the Industrial Revolution, it is that in the, in the same transformative period where productivity was going up so massively and new ways were being discovered to do all sorts of things, some things that were true were questioned, challenged, and, uh, and, and sort of it was as if they had changed when really they hadn't, and the word priority is among them. Uh, you know, you, you, just because you have a factory-based system and you can do a lot more than you used to be able to do in the same period of time doesn't mean that there isn't a priority at any given moment. One thing that you mentioned, I know we're taking it from the Industrial Revolution to the Internet and the Internet touching us in so many ways. So in the current times, it's great to know the origins of how we got to where we are. I am just constantly trying to dig into that and understand why the heck does our culture exist the way that we are based on historical perspective? But as far as all these inputs, the internet, I know you've also commented on, and this is just one thing that I really want you to, I haven't really heard this discussed very many other places, opinion overload. Now, a lot of people are familiar with information overload, which is what they associate with the internet, all these emails, social media, but now we are more interconnected, not necessarily in a good way. And there's so many other people who can say, hey, you know what would be great? I think you should do this for yourself, for me, for your community, for your congregation, whatever it may happen to be. And you have all of these different people, even if you're very reserved and you're not that much online. There's so many more opportunities, especially if you live in a city too. There's people all around us. All you need to do is go outside of your house, and then you have all of these different opinions on what you should, could do. This concept of opinion overload, 
can you just tell tell us a little bit about that a little more and this how yeah. how hyper connected we are and how that's just exacerbating the problem because this yeah. is really important. Yeah. So so let's just start off again. The the internet is still the news, right? Like it's not old news. It's really the news right now. It is a massive change in the human condition. It's you know like however often you talk about it, it's still so massive. And what's happened over the last 10 years? I mean, of course, has the internet still is, – is, is it impacting our lives in ways it didn't 10 years ago? Of course it is. I mean, what we what we call, you know, social media is just the internet evolving into the next phase. So what is that evolution? Well, the evolution is basically that in the last 10 years, people uh, were willing to put their identity with their comment, right? So – uh, so you're willing to own your your online identity as being somewhat equivalent to your you know to your true identity. Your name is there, your picture is there, and out of that uh, willingness grows all of these different services, uh, which allow everyone to be able to uh, to publish. I mean, it is a it is a massive change. I mean, think about how much harder it was to to share a message with uh, with a thousand people, with ten thousand people at given points in history. Uh, I mean, obviously, this has been analyzed a lot, right? This is Gutenberg's press. was a massive transformation in our ability to publish. And I think that where we are right now is the same level of exponential change. And uh, and what I think, I mean, using Peter Drucker's words, is that society is totally unprepared for this. You, you, you know, the, the speed of change has happened far faster than our ability to uh, to adapt to it. And so what, what are the effects of this? Well, uh, you, you know, it means that we still have the same kinds of rules of uh, how how much we should listen to people, how much we should care about what other people think of us. But the number of people who are getting a vote in our lives has increased, what, by 10 times? No, far more than that. A hundred times more than that. You know, I think it is for most people, a thousand times more people uh, have a vote in their life because on Facebook, you know about those people. On Twitter, you can hear about those reactions to what you're writing, to what you think, uh, to where you're going. I mean, those are just to name two. So, yes, as as we've gone from Internet 1.0 to 2.0, we've gone from this information overload idea to opinion overload. It's the socialization of the internet. And I do think we are still very unprepared for the uh, for the consequences of that. I think therefore, you know, taking this to a therefore what, is that is that instead of thinking about prioritization as one more thing, you know, like a, a little tool to put in your leadership toolbook or your life skill set, it, it, it shifts from that to being the thing it becomes the very work of life. The primary work of life is to discern what is essential, eliminate what's not, and figure out how to make it as effortless to execute those things that matter most. That becomes so, so central. That's why I think we shouldn't think about it as just something you do. It's something you have to become. You have to become an essentialist. That's that's the idea. And I think that's kind of the, the distinction I would put between uh, so much that is good that has been written about prioritization prior to essentialism. In this, it is a disciplined pursuit that ends up as becoming an essentialist. And that is what is required to be able to thrive in this new challenging environment. One of the ways that you've offered up is creating buffers in our life. 
whether it's buffers against our time or buffers against our attention, so that we limit the amount of inputs. We limit the number of opinions that we're getting in terms of what we should wear, what kind of work we should do, how we should eat. Can you tell us, what about you personally? What kind of buffers have you set up to protect yourself from this onslaught? Yeah, I mean, let's just let's talk about the, the, the story behind buffers. I was trying to explain the, the principle of, of buffers from a, uh, from a lean manufacturing point of view with my children. Uh, and, and we're driving along in the car. And I said, look, I mean, it's all about buffers. It's all about figuring out how to create enough space between us and the next car in front of us. And out of that grew a little game, which we still play, and they always enjoy the game, which is how can we go from point A to point B without the car ever stopping? Which is tricky, of course, if you have uh, if you have stop signs, you maybe have to do it. But outside of that, there's a journey we take uh, that, that if you are careful, what you do is you slow down a bit, and there's this buffer between you and the car in front of you. And what that means is that whatever they do, whatever unexpected thing comes along, you have the buffer with which to respond to it. You don't just have to slam on your brakes or swerve out of the way. You can just, you know, slowly speed, speed up, slowly speed, you know, go a little slower to, to adjust to what's coming. And uh, anyway, so this is a fun game. But the idea of buffer in our lives, I think, is very important. So often we're like the driver who is one inch behind the driver in front. And surprised that they feel frustrated and stressed and uh, and, and and reactive when they uh, when they change lanes in a moment that you're not expecting. I mean, if there's no buffer, you're going to have all of those emotions and all of those reactions. So, for what can we do in our lives? I mean, uh, I mean, there's so many things that we can do, and I'm trying to think about things that uh, that I've done to help with this. I mean, uh, you know, so I have uh, you know Sunday for me definitely. There's no social media at all on a Sunday. I said, that's helpful. It's a family day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have certain hours on the Sunday that, that even though I'm, I have uh, responsibilities at, at church, can feel quite heavy. There's certain hours, uh, four till seven, that I don't take any calls. I don't do anything. I'm just with my family, guaranteed for that time. Um, uh, we have uh, Monday night is, is completely scheduled as a family night. And no matter what else goes on, that is where we'll be. And that's what we'll be doing. Uh, you know, we, we've created really, uh, we are creating, this is not past tense, we are in the process all the time of creating a dream routine, where we say, okay, these are these are the rituals, these are the routines that are aligned with our longest term uh, life essential goals uh, that that if we practice them daily and weekly that we will feel in the moment I'm currently doing the most important thing I can be doing I, I you know so it's reading to our children at night that's having that that time in there that's a non-negotiable uh, thing that happens that's every right. night yeah that's right um, and so either either my wife or I I mean I don't mean 100% literally, uh, but I would say upwards of 90%. So it's so in a, in that sense, it's as non-negotiable as that. There has to be a pretty good reason, you know. Maybe we maybe we've all done, gone to a movie, so it's later, so we don't do it. I mean, there <laughs> sure, can be other reasons. Um, it's hard to be absolutist. Like we do this for the next 50 years of our life. Yeah, at no, absolutely, exactly, PM, exactly. Pacific daylight time, we will be here doing this thing. Yeah, that's hard to say. Yes, that's right, and you don't want your routine to to get in the way of what is actually most important. Uh, and, and yet, with that, there's far more that we have control of if we if we seek for it 
drip by drip. You know, if we if we work on it, and and it's it's no really it's real different. It's not it's no different concept than the concept of margin in business. I mean, you can't be in debt in business long term, or your, your business is 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 going to die. And yet, uh, and so that you can apply the principle of margin to to sort of the five areas of life. You can apply it to your financial life, but you can also apply it to your uh, to your spiritual life, to your physical life, to your emotional life, uh, to your intellectual life. In all areas, I think the goal is to create margin so that, uh, you know, margin or buffer, they're the same idea, uh, so that you're not so emotionally taxed all the time that there's nothing for the unexpected. And I suppose that's the key point. You know, if if your business is $1 profitable only, like if your margin is just $1 and then something happens that's unexpected, right? A key uh, client pulls out at the last moment, uh, then that's terribly stressful. Uh, but if your margin is larger, if you if you've got the then it means that whatever happens, you can then adjust to. I mean, I know there's the church that I go to, the global organization has or at any one time has the full uh, next year's uh, budget already completely paid for the year year before. I thought that was amazing when I learned about that. I mean, this is, is a global organization and it's completely done. And what that means, I mean, think of the wisdom of that. Of course, they, nobody can predict the future with perfect clarity. So you don't know what's coming. So therefore, you've got to create buffer. Now, that's just the financial example. But also think about uh, the emotional example. I mean, if I am strained to the, my limits emotionally – and, and then something happens, which inevitably does. You know, the, the, the one of my children feels uh, feels especially frustrated about something at school or or, uh, or whatever, right? I mean, it can be any number of things at any given moment. If I'm stretched to my limit already, I got no space for that. That is pure stress. I can't do anything about it. I can't respond to it. And certainly not with the kind of love that you would want to you know, envision or anticipate or desire to. And so you've got to make sure that that the space. And so, okay, so today is a is a literal example of this, right? I mean, I have many, many things. I could be busy from the first day this morning to the last thing at night with no rest in between. It's easy to imagine that and and to justify it. Uh, but instead, uh, because I've been traveling, I, I made it designed for this weekend that by you know three o'clock today, I'm done, and I'll just be inside with the family. Uh, I don't have to be there. There's no instantaneous. There's nothing. Oh, we, if you're not there, we're going to have a problem. No, I'm just going to be there so that I can support my wife, so I can talk with her, so we can, so that, that whatever comes along, we're there. I think this is so important. Create buffer, emotional buffer. What about physical buffer? How is our sleep doing? You know, if we're constantly sleep fatigued, and then something comes along that requires you know to really push it all of a sudden for an absolutely vital project that we that we care about. You don't have the steam to do it. You can't do it. You can't respond. And so you become ever more reactive, ever more busy, ever more uh, unable uh, to, to discern the vital few from the trivial many. Oh, my goodness, Greg. There's so much there. It's the sleep part, I'm so happy you had a chapter on sleep and the dichotomy that you painted of the essentialist versus the non-essentialist. The essentialist knowing that one hour sleep equals several more hours of higher productivity, where the non-essentialist thinking one hour sleep equals or one less hour sleep is one more hour productivity and how short-sighted that is. And this, this concept buffers too. I'll, I'll give you an example too. My day, I plan to watch a webinar for an hour and to interview you. That was it. 
Now, there's more to my day. My dog, my golden retriever, Emski, um, he has some medical problems. I had to take him to the vet. I was there for two hours this morning. It wasn't really anticipated, but I had enough buffer in my day to do that. My driving on the way there, I think you and I have different driving styles. I learned how to drive from my father who grew up in Brooklyn. So I don't have as much physical buffer between me and the car in front of me, which sometimes (laughs) taxes my wife's uh, emotional capacity. Uh, But I I get your point and how you can apply that to so many other things, spiritual, financial, physical, emotional. We're running a little short on time. And yes, I want you to be able to start your weekend with your lovely family. So before we wrap this up real quick, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you would like people to know? You know, I think that I think I, I want people just to know it can be done. Um, it can't be done without making trade-offs. Uh, but for example, let me give some, somebody, you know, one more thing they can do uh, that helps to celebrate this, their progress towards becoming an essentialist. And, and it's this, that, that you keep a journal. Uh, that already sounds a bit overwhelming to people, but not this kind of journal. You're only allowed to write one sentence in the journal uh, each day. And even though you feel like writing three, five, five, ten things, you're only allowed to do one thing for 21 days. One sentence per day for 21 days. And so you do less than you feel like on the first day because on the third day you maybe not got to feel like doing it, but you still only have one sentence. So it's it's re- achievable. It's, it's it's believable. And this is it. You just write down, I'm thankful today that I did this thing instead of this thing. Hmm. That's it. So you, you, you can write down, okay, so, so I'm grateful today that I spent the two hours at the vet instead of I don't know what it is. What would you have done instead? That you, you, because what happens when you do that is that suddenly you go, oh, it can be done. No, that doesn't mean you're going to get it right every time. Of course you won't. This is, we live in a non-essentialist, you know, mad world, the, the, sort of like the, the, the busyness bubble. We're in this irrational exuberance about doing more and being busy. Of course, in such a cultural environment, you, you know, you're going to fall into this pattern. But but by doing this simple little practice, one sentence a day, 21 days, get into the habit, you start to become empowered. I made a trade-off today. So I clearly have some choice. Maybe not choice over everything, but I have choice over this thing and I did it. And what about tomorrow? Maybe I can just feel a little more empowered and I can push back a little more. I can negotiate a little better. Uh, I can, in this small victories, if, when we change small things and things we do often, then I think you can expect to have tremendous progress down the road. So that's one, I think, final little practice to help celebrate the wins and to feel uh, feel like we're making progress uh, in our journey to become an essentialist. Wonderful. Well, if people want to make progress with your help, where can they find you online? Look, I think that uh, people want to continue the conversation. They can go to gregbecuen.com. Uh, the, you know, they can, there's, a, there's a place to, to, to send a contact in to share their journey, their adventure, their experiment with essentialism. We have uh, many, many emails from people all over the world now. Uh, and they're, they're always interesting and we're learning from them. Uh, and then if somebody really is saying, no, it's time for me to get serious, I really want to take this to the next level, then they can, they can uh, apply uh, for the essential program at applyessential.com. I will have links to all of those things in the show notes to make it really easy for people. Greg, 
Thank you so, so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. I really appreciate it. It's really my pleasure. Thank you, Joe. All right. All right. Good stuff, eh? I streamlined the intro for this episode, at least I tried, uh, and streamlined the interview itself as practice for my own essentialist-ish life. Hey, Greg, what do you think? How'd I do? Well, I know Greg did great because I got a ton out of the interview, and when I get a ton out of the interview, you normally tell me that you do too. Show Greg how much you appreciated his rare feature-length interview by giving him a shout-out on Twitter, where he's at Gregory McEwen, or when you head over to gregmcewen.com. That's G-R-E-G-M-C-K-E-O-W-N.com. You can find links to all the stuff we spoke about, timestamps, takeaways, and more grooviness in the show notes at valueofsimple.com slash S-A-S-M-0-8-5. You'll also see information in the show notes about how to support me, this show, and our community via Patreon at valueofsimple.com slash Patreon. If you're not already a podcast subscriber, email newsletter getter dude or dudettes, or want to leave a brief iTunes review, you're going to find links to all that fun stuff at valueofsimple.com slash S-A-S-M-0-8-5. You know what else? I love connecting with you and rely on your insights to make this show better. So if you have something to share, don't be shy. I'm all ears and eyes. My email is joel at valueofsimple.com. I'm on Twitter at Joel Zislowski, and I'm proudly active on Google Plus, if that's your thing. I'm a lot of places, actually as I've said before. So I invite you to connect with me wherever we both are. I love connecting. Now, if you got something out of this episode or just generally dig the show, share it with some folks, will ya? Your friends, your family, people, someone you just met, they are all depending on you to point them to the good stuff. And I am always super duper grateful when you show some love by talking about what we're building here together. I'm planning to go solo in my next episode and recap the Simple Rev 2015 event from an organizer, host, and participant perspective all in under, um, hold on, let me run the math. I'm doing the calculations. Under, say, an hour? That sounds like a little bit of time for a lot of great stuff. That will be a serious test for sharing what's essential. Right now, though, it's now time for your partner in simplifying to sign off again. You've just listened to the Smart and Simple Matters podcast with Joel Zaslavsky, creator of all things value of simple. <laughs>